for our call to worship, I want to read from John chapter 14, and I hope that uh, you'll see how this ties into the theme of the sermon and what we're going to talk about today. John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking with His disciples. This is one of the, the most important chapters in the Bible. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? <coughs> Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place. So that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. The greatest thing that Jesus could do at the end of His ministry was leave and give us the Holy Spirit. That was the best thing He could do not be with us here on the earth. If we have His Spirit, we have His power, and we will work, and we will do the things that Jesus 
commands us to do. We will do great things. If we do not have His Spirit, we will not do great things. So let us worship together and let us worship in spirit and in truth and let us seek the Spirit's leading and the Spirit's guidance in our worship. We have a Bible, open it to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians uh, chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we are going to read, uh, beginning in verse 15, all the way through the end of chapter 5, through verse 33. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 33. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. Now, as Christ submits, or the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's Word. Get out of seat. The title of the sermon is today is The Redeemed Life. And here's, what, here's the plan. The first half or maybe third is going to be introduction. I'm going to introduce what I'm talking about and I'm going to answer this question. What's supposed to happen to us now that we are redeemed? That'll be the first half, first third. Then after the introduction, long introduction... I'm going to move into a, an exposition of some of the verses that we read. And it's just, we're just going to look at some practical applications for living. How do we live in light of what we know? The reason I'm doing that is because th these are my options. I can do this today, or I can take a break from my series to preach through the book of Ephesians so that we can come back to our series to finish the series so that we can get back to our the book of Matthew, or I can just take a day, take, you know, two or three hours right now and just scan the book of Ephesians and just get a kind of a grasp on what Paul's saying. I don't think it'll take two or three hours, but we'll see. So that's the plan. Long introduction, longer exposition. All of today is going to be introduction for the next several weeks where we'll talk about Wives, husbands, mothers, fathers. We're getting to that point. So the last time that we were together, two weeks ago, we talked about redemption 
from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And, and the question that we answered is, what happens to us when we are born again, or when we are saved, or, or what led up to that point? When we say, we've, I've been saved, or I am redeemed, or I've been born again, what does that mean? What, what took place to get me to that point? And what we have to understand is that being saved or being redeemed is something that happens to you. It's not something you do. You don't just stand up in a church service one day and say, I would like to be a Christian. Pick me. I've decided today to be a Christian. That, that's not how it works. Redemption is something that happens, that God does to you. And it's Trinitarian. God the Father, in eternity past, elected His people. He chose us before the foundation of the world that would be holy and blameless. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons. Okay? And then Jesus, the Son, comes into human history in eternity and through sh by shedding His blood on the cross, He redeems us. He pays for our sin. He buys us. He forgives us of our sin. Now we can't stop there, but that's what we usually do. When we think about salvation and we think about redemption, usually we stop with what we got at Calvary. We stop with, I've been forgiven. And this is, it is sort of a positive thing. It's, it's good that we're excited about being forgiven. It's good that we're excited about being given eternal life being set free from slavery at the cross, that's good. But we can't stop there and say, well, I've been forgiven. I don't have to worry about hell anymore. I've got heaven to look forward to because there's one more member of the Trinity that we have to remember, and that is the Holy Spirit comes and He is the one who applies the work to us. Jesus left. He went up to the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit now comes through the preaching of the Gospel and applies the work. He makes us saved. He seals us. He stamps us with a new stamp. He, he transfers us to a new owner. That was redemption. And Paul says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the Gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, we're sealed. So you heard the gospel. You probably didn't think of this when it was happening, but this is what happened. At some point, if you're a Christian, you heard the gospel. And as the gospel came to you, the Holy Spirit came inside of it almost. Think of a water hose. And there's water coming through. The hose is the gospel. And the Holy Spirit's coming inside of it. And it hits you. And the Holy Spirit says, come to life. And at that moment, you begin to understand, oh, oh, I'm the sinner. I'm the one that's dead in sin. I'm the one that needs to be saved. I want that. And then, in that split second, that's when you said, I want to be saved. I need to be saved. The Holy Spirit applies it. Now, in the book of Ephesians, and this is just the pattern of the Gospel, remember, right belief, understanding that, leads to right living. Once we understand what God has done for us, I was dead in trespasses and sins. Now I'm alive in Christ. Once we understand that, we begin to live differently. Experiencing salvation makes us or causes us to live like saved people. It's not the other way around. It's not you, you try to live like a saved person. Live, 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 live. Hoping that when you get to heaven, God will say, you know what? You did live like a... Now that I look at my paperwork, you did live like a saved person. Come on in. That's not how it works. He saves you, and then He causes you to live like a redeemed person. Now, our goal in the Christian life after salvation is living rightly, or, or right living as an expression of worship to God. This is sanctification. We're molded into the image of Christ. God works with us and makes us live the Christian life and it's for God's glory. So it's not moralism. We're just trying to be good. And it's not arrogance. Like we walk around and say, well, I'm a Christian and I'm just better than that. 
And when we think about revival, we don't pray for revival just because we want the, the culture to get better and be like us. It's because we want God to be praised. We want God's glory to be manifest when people live like Christians, live according to God's plan. And it's not self-righteousness. We're not living this way in order to earn salvation. The question is, and I want to try to answer today is, how does this happen? When, when we're saved, so let's say we're redeemed, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, and then the next step is we live a certain way. What makes us live that way? Is it just positive thinking? Like I just think good things? Is it positive affirmations? I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Just say it in the mirror a bunch, and, and eventually you'll start living a godly life. I'm a Christian. I'm a, I think, I, is, is that it? We don't say bad things, only say good things. We, we speak. I don't think that's it. Is it um, just studying a lot of theology? Reading, reading the same Bible verses over and over and over and over until you finally get it, and then somehow you just start living like a Christian? I don't think any of those are correct. What is it that gets us from the reality of being redeemed to living the lifestyle of a Christian? This is the main idea of, of the intro. So I've got an intro, main idea, and then I've got a... <clears throat> what is it that gets me from the reality of being saved to living like a Christian? Because here's the problem. Many professing Christians, they don't look any different than those who are not Christians. At all. I'm not talking about belief. Because we can say, well, yeah, but in my heart, I'm a, I don't care about that. I'm talking about the way you live. Because if we believe that Jesus transforms, transforms everything, then everything you do will look different. And, and a lot of professing Christians, they don't look any different than the world in their actions. Perhaps you look different on Sunday morning, maybe... And even if you do look different on Sunday morning, by the time Sunday morning's over, Sunday afternoon, you look like everybody else. Staring at a screen. Staring at the back of your eyelids. You're, you're back to Saturday number two. We don't look any different than the world in the way we live. Why, why is it that there's so little difference in the way we live than if we profess to be... Christians, and then the fruit of that is we're making no effect in the world. Christians are benign. We're here, and we're like, we say, you know, well, they're going to have the, uh, the abortion debate. And Christians, we're going to march on Washington. You know what they're doing inside Washington while we're marching? They're just doing their jobs. They don't care. We're making no difference. It doesn't matter. Because they know when we get done with our march, we're going to go back home and we're going to live like everybody else. We're not making any difference. We're benign. We're useless. We're just kind of like the neighborhood kid who comes around. It's like, ah, he's here. He'll leave in a little bit. Give us some time. He'll get over it. You know, all they used to make that big fuss about divorce, but nah, they got over that. Now they're making that big fuss about same-sex marriage, but they'll get over that. And we're just benign. We make no difference because in our individual lives, we really don't look any different than the world. Do you ever ask yourself that question all by yourself in your heart and mind? Why do I not look any different than anybody else? You read the book of Acts. Look at Stephen. Look at Paul. Look at Peter. Look at Philip. When you look at the saints throughout history, the early church fathers, the reformers, the, the Puritans, the great, the great Christians that we could all name. And you say, why do I not look like that? Why does my life not look like their life? Why am I not making a difference like, like their life made a difference? And the only conclusion that we come to is there's a disconnect between right belief and right living. Because I can say, well, I believe everything Spurgeon believes. Well, I believe everything Paul believes. I know his theology. I believe everything Stephen believed. When they look on my face, do they see the glory of God shining? What, what's the difference? There must be a disconnect between 
what I believe and, and how I'm actually living out my life. So the question again is, what activates this living? What gets me from, okay, now I'm a Christian too. I want to I wanna live like it. I want to make a big difference. I want to be this one of these, and I, and I hope you have this picture in your mind. I want to be one of these Christians that when I die, Christians all over the place just think, I remember hearing about that guy, that girl. I remember some things. Or maybe it's just, maybe a circle around you says, they had a huge impact on my life by the way that they lived. We have to understand that the gospel and that redemption doesn't stop with, well, I prayed my prayer, I repented, and now I'm saved. It doesn't stop. In Him, you also, when you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In John 14, Jesus says, I'm going, but I'm sending another. And it's better that I go and send another than if I were to just stay. So we get the Holy Spirit. There's a scripture passage that I quote all the time. This might be in my top five favorite Bible verses because this should affect the way we think. Charismatics and Pentecostals cannot steal our promises with their nonsense. And their fanaticism. Okay? Listen to this. Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and, here it is, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Promise of the new covenant. I will make you live like a Christian. I'm going to give you the Spirit. I'm going to make you live like you have the Spirit. The New Testament saints, Peter, Paul, Philip, Stephen, you name them, they had the Holy Spirit. Look at their lives. We have the Holy Spirit. Look at our lives. Look at us. We don't look much different than the world most of the time. So what's the problem? That's the question. What is the problem? Why is there an inconsistency? We have two options. The Holy Spirit's inconsistent in how He helps people. Or two, it's us. I'm going to go with with the latter. It's our problem. It's not God's problem. It's our problem. Now notice what Paul does in Ephesians. We're going to scan through the book of Ephesians, look at a lot of Scripture, and notice what Paul does. Because this is, this is going to be a really quick theology of the Holy Spirit's working in our lives. In chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, look at that. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom, heaven, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Paul bows to the Father. He prays for Holy Spirit strength, strengthening in their inner being. He says that He may grant the gift. I want the Holy Spirit to gift you To be strengthened, that's a progressive growth. You're getting stronger like you're working out. Strengthened with power through His Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God. Not our Spirit, His Spirit. And He's talking to Christians who He already said, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, you received the promised Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. Now I'm praying that you would be strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, why would he pray this? Well, the answer is, and here's a truth that we have to understand. And and, and Baptists are are bad for this. We don't understand this. We're so afraid of being called Pentecostal or charismatic that we go way over here to this side and we, we barely ever talk about the Holy Ghost. We need to understand that there's three persons of the Trinity. You can be sealed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit and still impede that work 
of the Spirit in your life. You can, you can quench the Spirit. Just because we say, well, I believe in irresistible grace, that's salvation. We're talking about after salvation, you can impede it. He wants to work. And you're, you're just, you're fighting Him. You're not, you won't be pushed. And this is why our lives are so much different than the lives of the biblical saints. Paul prays this for these Christians. We should pray this for one another. We should beg God, strengthen us with power. Strengthen me. Strengthen me. Strengthen me. Fill me with the Spirit every day. So we need to understand that we can be filled and indwelt and not be, and, and, or, or, or sealed and indwelt and not be fully filled all the time. Alright, now look at verses 17 through 19. Just real quickly, another prayer is prayer request number two. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is more of, of right belief. He wants them to comprehend the full-orbed love of Christ. Now, if I were preaching straight through Ephesians, we'd, we'd settle here. It's interesting that he says this, this Christ that surpasses knowledge. I'm praying that you understand this thing that you'll never understand. He wants you to understand how much Christ loves you. And then the third prayer request at the end of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with the fullness of of God. How does God fill us? What of God comes into us to fill us? It's the Holy Spirit. That's what fills us. So he's just repeating what he started with. And the fullness is, is like to top it off. So you're filling something, filled, and then you get all the way to the top, that's fullness. Top it off. So he's like, I want you to be filled and topped off to the complete filling all that you can possibly get of God the Holy Spirit. <coughs> So, again, back to our understanding of the Holy Spirit. Paul prays that these Christians who already have the Holy Spirit inside of them will be able to grow and advance and strengthen, make progress in their being filled with the Spirit. Receive more power from the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not a second blessing or a, a rebaptism. Or like you, you get saved and then you're still waiting at some point for the baptism to come and you start speaking in tongues. It's none of that. You're saved. You're filled. You're baptism. But then there are times later where you, you strengthen more. You get more. You're filled more. All throughout the book of Acts, you read stories of men who would be, it says, and they were, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they preached. Find some men who were filled with the Holy Spirit and let them be the deacons. Over and over. Now, if you are a Christian, you will desire this. You want this. Man, I want to grow. I want power. I want to walk out that door and I want people to just fall down. Just, I just say hey to them and they just, I want to be saved. I, that's what we want. Just to start, we just want to walk up to people and be that Christian who somebody says something to us and we just spit gospel. Yeah, but do you know Jesus? Do you know my King? Everywhere we go, we want to be like that, and we, but we, we usually cower in fear. It's probably not the best tactic, but, he, but we think it'd still be cool to be like that, just to be... I do anyway. If you're a Christian, you desire this type of progress, this Holy Spirit power. If you think of it, you hear this progress, and you think, ah, I can take it or leave it. At least I'm not going to hell when I die. You're not a Christian. You don't have the Spirit to begin with, a Christian desires progress. A Christian desires growth because a Christian desires to honor God. They want this. It, it, it burns inside of them. I want so badly to know this power. Then in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3, Paul says this. He goes into that doxology. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul prays to God, and then at the end he says, Now to that God who I prayed 
to whom I prayed, who's able to answer far more than anything I could ever pray and you could ever pray, to Him be glory in His church as He answers this prayer. As He works through His Holy Spirit to empower His church, He gets the glory and He's able to answer this prayer. So what Paul says in the doxology is, I've prayed the prayer. I've prayed the prayer to the God who can answer all my prayers. And then he begins and he moves to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. This is where he begins the imperative sections of the letter. I, therefore, in light of all that, describes himself a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says, now live, command, imperative, live worthy of your calling. That's the effectual call of the Gospel. Live like a Christian. Now notice, there's no secret. There's nothing between chapter 3 and chapter 4 that says, now here's what you got to do to make it work. Here's the button. Here's the code. Here's the coupon. None of that. He says, I've prayed it. I've prayed it to the God who can answer it. You've been called from death to life. Now live like it. And that's it. And then he, he, he just begins to list out for three more chapters in his letter how to live. Now do this. And he begins to give out practicals. Start living like this, Ephesian Christians. You've got the Spirit. I'm praying that you would get more of the Spirit. I pray to the God who can answer my prayer that you would get more of the Spirit. He'll do this because He gets glory in His church when you do this. And so, just do it. Just live it. Just start living according to the commands. I've prayed it. It'll work. Now do it. And there are many other books in the Bible where he just, they just list out Live like this. Live like this. Live like this. Read the Ten Commandments. Rules for living. Do this. Don't do this. The Bible is just general guidelines a lot of times for how to live with a biblical worldview based on what you're learning about who God is and who Jesus is. When we begin to get a full-orbed grasp of who God is and who Jesus is, it shapes the way we live. And he says, now just do it. And he does this teaching in this book and almost all, everywhere in the New Testament especially by giving contrasts. When he says, give, tells us how to live, he does it by contrasting. Uh, this is who you were and this is who you are. Don't do this, do this, don't do this. Uh, I've often called it the put off, put on uh, principle, I guess. So, look at chapter 4, verse 20. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to, be, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says, here's what I taught you. Put off who you were. Stop living like a lost person. Put on who you are. Start living like a Christian. Put on the new self. And it's interesting that he says you're being created after the likeness, renewed after the likeness of God. Now we know what this means because we spent four weeks talking about God's design for human beings. God's design for men. God's design for women. God's design for marriage. Notice, the design hasn't changed. Sin came, marred the image, but the design never changed. God just says, I'm going to redeem my people and make them back into that original image. Plan hasn't changed, so I don't have to preach those sermons again. It's all still relevant. Everything we learned about the design of God. So as a Christian, you're a new creation. You're being recreated. You're being restored back to that image that you were after the fall. And He says, put off the old, put on the new. Back in chapter 2, he said you were dead in trespasses and sins in your former way of living, and now you are, you've been made alive in Christ. Notice the contrast. Dead and alive. Old and new. 
Okay, chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of light. There's another contrast. You used to be dark, now you're light. Live like light. You've been redeemed, you've been purchased. You're under new ownership. Live like you are under new ownership. Christ went to the cross. He stood toe-to-toe with death, hell, and the grave. And He said, let my people go that they may serve me. And He won. He's victorious. So we're not slaves to that anymore. We are slaves to righteousness. You're not dark. You're light. Now live like children of light. And all of this can only happen The only way it can happen is when Paul's prayer is answered that we would be filled with the Spirit and strengthened in our inner being by the Holy Spirit. You understand? We have to be strengthened. Put off the old, put on the new. There's no activation. There's nothing special that we can do except just live like Christians. That's all by way of introduction. Beginning in verse 15. I may not finish today. Beginning in verse 15, Paul gives three practical contrasts, three more contrasts to help them understand how to live. If you can picture an outline, these would be Roman numerals 1, 2, and 3. And then under number 3, we're going to come drop down and do A, B, and C. And then under C, we're going to drop down and do 1, 2, and 3 again. I mean, Paul's going to do it, not me. He did it. But that's just a way to, way to put all this in order. He's got a line of thinking here. He's, he's working his way to verse 22. That's where he's, he's working to. So, contrast number one. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as wise, or not as unwise, but as wise. It's contrast. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Look carefully how you walk. Okay? Pay close attention to how you live your life. Be exact in the details of your living. You can't just assume, well, I'm a Christian now, and so basically whatever I decide is probably right, because I mean, I got the Holy Spirit. No! The heart is deceitfully wicked above all else and desperately sick. You can't trust your heart. So you have to be exact in your details. A lot of times we say this, well, I'm praying about it. And that means what? You prayed. That's that's one way. I pray. God's got to speak to you to get any conversation going about the issue, okay? So we have to analyze and and be detailed and be exact in all of our decisions. Look carefully how you walk. How often do you go about your daily activities and inquire of God as to whether or not you should or shouldn't or how you should do this? How would you have me drive to work? How would you have me to work? How would you have me to clock out? How would you have me to spend my break time? How would you have me to go home from work? How would you have me to take a shower? All these things. Asking God, how would you have me live? Lead me by your Spirit. Be exact. We're God's children now. We do what He says, not what we say. So we can't just say, well, I'm a Christian, so, you know, however I feel is probably right. Not as unwise... Unwise is is foolish, is fleshly, is worldly, is carnal. In the the letter here, it would be as the Gentiles are, the, the unbelieving nations. But wise, with godly wisdom. Now worldly, again, I say this all the time because when we church people here worldly, we think, oh yeah, well I'm not a prostitute. I don't sell meth. I don't shoot the dude who stole my chainsaw in the back of the head. I'm not worldly. That's not, that is worldly. That's not necessarily worldly. Worldly is just going about your life without an eye toward what God would have you to do. It's living like I'm the boss, not God. See, the world, in the world, the worldly people, they are smart, but they're not wise. They are good with their money, but they're not wise. They know how to make a 10 year plan, but they're not wise. They can set everything out in a line to where by the time they're 33, they're, they're coasting in their career. They're resting. They've got it all planned out and they got, got it easy. 
that's not wise. That's not godly wisdom. That's just worldly smarts. Live as wise. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, that's worldly wisdom. In your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. There is worldly wisdom and there is wisdom from above. Wisdom from above leads to godly living. By your good conduct, show me you've got godly wisdom. Show me your works and show me you've got godly wisdom. Don't show me your selfish ambition that you planned out things and you thought it out. That's, that's worldly wisdom. Read the book of Proverbs. Book of wisdom. Full of godly wisdom. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And he gives, gives generously to all without reproach. Ask God, give me wisdom. Study the book of Proverbs. Don't be unwise, but wise. A part of being wise is making the best use of the time because the days are evil. This is a lifestyle of one who has godly wisdom. Make the best of your, your time, not the time on your clock. Kairos, the, the, uh, an allotment of time. Every one of us have been given an amount of days. We can't add to it and we can't take away from it. So make the best use of it. Be a good steward. A good steward is a wise steward. So make good use of it. Don't let time slip away. Don't, don't waste time on things that are temporal. Most of you are probably familiar with the, the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. 70 plus resolutions that he wrote down. He, he lived by them. Every day, every week, every month, every year. He would analyze every aspect of his life. Listen to these. Resolution number five, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolution number seven, this is big, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. If it were the last hour of your life, what would you do? Some people would say, well, I'd go skydiving. Go Rocky Mountain climbing. 3.7 seconds. That's, that, that is worldly, ignorant foolishness. And when he gets to hell, unless he gets saved, he's going to say, I wish I would have spent the last hour of my life on my knees before the God of heaven. That's worldly. The Christian, if, if we know that we have an hour left, we're not going to do that garbage. Because the days are evil. We don't know what tomorrow brings, folks. What if you did? Think about it. It's, it's a good thing we don't, but what if you did know that tomorrow you would be killed? Tomorrow you would be imprisoned. Tomorrow the government's going to come to your door and say, open up, give us your children. We heard that you're teaching your children out of the Bible. No more. Give them to us. We'll handle it from here. What would you do with today? What if our rights to worship were taken away tomorrow? What if this were the last worship service we were ever legally allowed to have? I'll be writing out slips of paper with the code to the lock on the basement. We live after the fall into sin. We are awaiting the restoration. Okay, we live in evil days. We don't know what's coming and it's getting worse. So live that way. Live like it's getting worse. And live, make the best use of your time. Why would any of us waste our time on trivial things unless we really didn't believe what the Bible says? Why would we waste our time on things that are not going to matter in 10,000 years unless we really believe, or unless we don't believe that the Bible doesn't mean it when it says He comes like a thief in the night? We don't know. Number two. Contrast number two. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He restates this thing about wisdom, being wise. Understand the will of the Lord. Receive godly wisdom. Read God's Word. You cannot know God's will. You cannot live in God's will. You cannot be led by the Spirit of God unless you are taken up daily in His Word. It can't happen. Don't try to give excuses. It can't happen. If you come to me with a pastoral issue, a counseling issue, this is happening. This, that's happening. I feel like this. I'm depressed. This is happening in our marriage. I'm going to say, how much time do you spend daily in the Word? Number one question. This is how we commune with God. Scripture and prayer. Conversation. And if you're not doing that, you can't have godly wisdom. Period. Number three. Third contrast. Do not get drunk with wine. That is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Now in the original context, the Ephesians, more than likely, this is talking about how they would just load up and get drunk and go into these massive sexual orgies in worship to the goddess Diana. They would just let their bodies be taken over and just roll around in a pile of nudity and perversion and abomination in worship to their God, just be taken over. Because they thought that was worship. The evacuation of the mind and the the taking over of the emotions and the physical senses. Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not what Christians do. Don't be overtaken with the things by which the world is overtaken. Y'all probably seen that video that I posted on Facebook of the the dude with the the bottle of Jack. He nails it. He nails it. The same goes for us, okay? Original context. Look at all the verses that say, watch out for wine. Stay away from wine. Don't tarry long at the wine. Look, if you drink, be warned. It'll get you. But, there's more application. This could be anything other than the Holy Spirit, anything worldly, that can take over your mind and dictate how you live. This could be work. This could be hobbies. This could be music. This could be television. This could be my family. This could be money and finances that dictate how you live. Well, I'm going to uproot and move my family because that's where my job's going. Why is that dictating how you live? Well, I'm going to put my kids in school here because of this. Why is that dictating how you live? Asking God. See, God should be dictating every decision that we make. Romans chapter 16, or 6, verse 16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Anything you give yourself over to, that, that will lead you away and, and, and control you, you become a slave of that thing or that person. So anything that dictates your life other than God has become your master. It has become your God. You're breaking the first of the Ten Commandments. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. So we don't let our minds and our wills and our lives be taken over by the things of the world. We are to be led or be filled With the Holy Spirit. Now we're back full circle. Back to the main point. Here's the connector of heart belief to Christian action. We must only allow God the Holy Spirit to be the one who leads us, guides us, directs us, instructs us in all of our decisions. He fills us. He overtakes us. He masters us. The wording here, be filled with the Spirit, is present, passive, imperative. I'll explain what that means if you're not an English teacher, because I'm not either. Present, passive, imperative. Present. Do it now. Right now. Right now be filled with the Spirit. Every time you open your Bible, it means do it now. Not, you did it then. Not, do it someday. Do it now. Always and every time, be being filled with the Spirit. Passive. You don't Do it. It's something that happens to you. Be being filled. Let it happen to you. And it's an imperative. It is a command. Be being filled with the Spirit. Think of these phrases. Commands. Be getting tattooed. Be getting kicked. 
be getting hugged. Now think about those phrases. They all imply that you put your hand over your mouth, you relinquish all your rights, you stop fighting, and you give yourself over to be subject to the actions of another. I'm just going to sit here and take it. Be getting kicked. Be getting hugged. Be getting tattooed. That's what this says when it says be being filled. We have to submit, relinquish all of our rights, and then be filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God. And it looks like this, Galatians 5. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. How much more plain could it be? You've got the flesh and you've got the Spirit and they are in contrast. They butt heads. Okay, They are in opposition. You have to seek to honor God above all else. Die to yourself daily. Take up your cross. Crucified with Christ. Go ahead and make up your mind. I'm dead. I died when Christ died. I don't get to choose anymore. I don't get to pick. I've given up all of my rights. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. Now, under being filled with the Spirit, real quickly, three different commands. This is what a person looks like when they live by the Spirit. (coughs) Notice the flow of thought. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Number one, addressing one another with psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody with the Lord in your heart. Number two, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See how that works? Do not be unwise, but wise. Do not get drunk. Or do not be unwise, but wise. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit leads to a joyful heart, a thankful heart, and a humble heart. These are things that should characterize a Christian. A Spirit-filled Christian. A joyful heart. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Listen, everybody. Spirit-filled Christians, you guessed it, they sing. Spirit-filled Christians sing. Notice I did not say spirit-filled Christians love to go and drawn on in an emotional whirlwind and get carried away by mindless repetitions and and chest-thumping bass beats until they can't think anymore. That's not what I said. I said Christians, spirit-filled Christians sing. And they love to sing. Lights up, lights down, people here, people are not here. All by myself or in the gathered church. We love to sing. And he's addressing here the different types of songs that we use in corporate worship. And the song that we sing in our hearts. Sing loud and sing proud. Whether there's music or not. Get over yourself and sing. I don't know if it's out of pride that we're just like, like we're afraid somebody's going to hear us. Sing. Spirit-filled Christians, sing. Look at the first song in the Bible. They were on the side of the Red Sea with dead Egyptians floating in the water. Just dancing around singing. Praise God. He killed all the Egyptians. And they're just singing. And our songs have to be, you know, a lot of times just what some emotional love song that you can't tell whether it's to God or to somebody else. Spirit-filled Christians sing. Spirit-filled Christians are happy people. Not sad, not grumpy, not with a scowl on their face. Spirit-filled Christians are happy. We have joy in our hearts. It overflows in song. We make melody to the Lord. You think He's listening to us sing thinking, I don't like your, I don't like your tone there. The melody's a little off. No! Man, He loves it when we sing. When we make up our own songs, sing the psalms, hymns, spirit. He loves it. He loves to hear His children sing. Some of you with children, you're gonna, your kids are going to get to like case where they're five and they start singing around the house. He was outside last night. 
almost embarrassing me, belting out the doxology and some songs he's made up because the neighbors were partying too loud and he wanted to upstage them. And I wouldn't let him go over there and see what was going on. So he's singing to upstage them. And I'm kind of like, hey, you know, keep it down. I love it. Think about how our Heavenly Father feels when we sing songs of praise to Him. A joyful heart. A thankful heart. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit-filled Christians are thankful always and for everything to God. Every good thing, every bad thing, every happy thing, every sad thing, every positive thing, every negative thing, our thoughts go immediately to God. Why is that? Because for us, God is never far from our thoughts. He's always very near. We're always right there on the verge of just, just being in His arms. And so, if it's a good thing, we know that every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or, or shifting shadow. And so we see a good thing, we thank God. Yeah. My God is good. He's always good. He's only good. He's, His intents are, are forever good towards me. And so when we see a good thing, we think of God. And when we see a bad thing, a terrible thing, a horrible thing, a, a heart-wrenching thing, we think, my God is in control. My God is sovereign. This cannot take my joy from me. My God has not moved. We think of God. And Spirit-filled Christians know this and acknowledge this proudly. We're thankful. Thank you, Lord. And number three, or C, a humble heart. This leads us back to our series. All of that was for this point. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Spirit-filled Christians understand authority that has been given by God and they gladly submit. Notice, out of reverence for Christ. We read in chapter 1, verse 22, Christ has been given as head over all things to the church. So Christ is head over all things and He's been given as head of the church. But He's still head over all things. He said in Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has all authority. So any authority placed over us is instituted by Him. And so the authorities in our lives represent the authority of Jesus. And so when we see them, we think, hey, you're here on behalf of my King. Yeah, you're here. I get, I get that. I can submit to you because you're here for my King. And a Spirit-filled Christian gladly and humbly submits to these authorities because we know they're placed there by our Master. Hey, if you're here by my King, you're good by me. Police, state troopers, stoplights, stop signs, boss people, government, whatever. Hey, you're here by my King. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. We're good. As long as they're punishing evil and supporting good, hey, we're on good terms. We gladly submit then, Paul goes into what is called a family table. He gives three contexts where this submission plays out. Husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. And next week we'll begin to look at the role of the Spirit-filled wife in submission to her husband. Then we'll look at the Spirit-filled husband and how he loves his wife. The point is this. Until we are devoted, sold out, bought into this idea that we must beg and plead for the Holy Spirit to fill us and empower us to live out a life that pleases God, we won't pray. And we won't beg and we won't plead. We won't, sink, we won't seek this. You have to desire this because what it means is submission. It means mortification of the flesh. It means crucifying your flesh. Putting to death your desires, that's not fun for anybody. Nobody just wakes up and is like, man, I'm, I'm ready to get rid of everything that I love today. Nobody thinks that. So we have to pray and ask God to help us. And perhaps you don't have this desire. There are two different desires we need to distinguish between. And this is the end. If you're a Christian, you have the desire to, to be strengthened and to grow, to make progress. That will lead to the desire to mortify your flesh, to be crucified with Christ, to put to death the deeds of your flesh, to stop 
desiring your fleshly things. It will come. It will grow. You'll desire to grow. You'll pray and ask. And God will do it. If you don't desire to grow, you're not a Christian. You don't have the, the initial spirit filling. You've never been sealed. And so you don't want to grow. And so you're never going to get to step number two because you've never been to step number one. So the starting place is being filled first. Repentance and faith in Jesus. Jesus lived in the place of sinners. He died in the place of sinners. And now God commands, imperative, He commands all people everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, the Spirit will come. It will seal you, stamp you, make you His. And He will give you that desire to plead and to pray. Don't, do not leave here without the desire to grow. Because that should be feared as a, a lack of salvation. If you say, well, I, I'm not real crazy about that putting to death the deeds of my flesh. Well, that's understandable, but it's not acceptable. We need to get to that point. And that comes when we pray, we bow our knees before the Father, and we ask that He would grant us to be strengthened with power by His Holy Spirit in our inner being. When we begin to pray that, if we pray that every day this week, next week, the wives will walk in and they'll say, tell us what I need to do to submit to my husband. And then it'll probably take at least 14 days. We'll come back the next week and the husbands will say, now I think I might be ready to start loving my wife the way Christ loved the church. Maybe. And then after that, we'll talk about fatherhood and then just how to manage the household. And we'll talk about mother, or motherhood first. How to manage the household well. And we'll talk about fatherhood and how as a father, as the, the head of the house, it's your job to make sure this whole series is activated inside your home. Let's pray.